Hi friends, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. I'm Dr. MC McDonald. I am a PhD trauma researcher and a life coach, and it's my goal in life to change the way that we define and understand and treat trauma. Here's why. Trauma is not actually a sign of weakness or disorder. It's a biological response born of strength. Without it, we would not survive. So I think the first step towards healing is being able to see this so that we can stop shaming ourselves for being human. I'm here with my sister, Elizabeth Meadows. Each week we read your letters and give you information and advice about how to understand and demystify your experiences and symptoms so that you can heal. We bring together my research with our lived experiences so that we can all better understand and cope with trauma. So pull up a chair, grab a coffee and join us. Hi, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's March. It's March again. Woohoo! <laughs> Doesn't it feel like 10 years since last March? It does. Pandemic time is a complete... I didn't think time made sense before. <laughs> yeah. And now Do you remember like when you like shut down? Like, like when your life shut down? Mm-hmm. For sure. I remember the exact day. Yeah. I, just, I also remember like, I don't know what, um, I, I was like, I don't understand these rules. Am I allowed to be outside? Like what is happening? You know, it yeah. was so, the communication was so confusing. It was confusing. It was, it was, um, yeah, it was tough. My, uh, Brent works for a company that was kind of the super spreader yeah. here in Boston and it was in the news every single day. So, you know, we were in a place where it was like, don't tell people where you work. <laughs> like, right. you know, if you have anything with the name on it, don't wear it. Right. Like, you know, it was, it, it was crazy. And, you know, he talked a lot about colleagues that, you know, were trying to drop their kids off at daycare and they knew where they worked and they were like turned away. I mean, it, there was a lot of like shaming going on really? because people wow. were so scared and didn't understand what was happening. But um, yeah, I remember like, I think it was March like 9th was like the last time we were like out walking around, went out to lunch, mm-hmm. you know, I remember being in a yoga class and there was, and I, you know, they have all these policies at the place I used to go where the, you know, this is not pandemic related. This is just in general. If you are sick, especially if you have something respiratory, don't come to class, you know, like it's not okay. Cause the room is closed and there's too many people in there. And you're like, you know, eight inches away from your, the person next to you on all sides and yeah. there was some guy in the class coughing like a maniac. And I was just, it was, I was so irritated <laughs> the whole time. Cause I was like, dude, like you're right. obviously not okay. Don't, what are you doing? And I don't know that, you know, if he had COVID, I didn't get it. I don't know if that's what it was or whatever, but I just like, I remember thinking about that for the next week being like, man, like we used to sit in a room and sweat and cough in each other's faces. <laughs> Right. And think nothing of it. Right. (laughs) Right. That was like a good time. (laughs) You paid for that. (laughs) That's insane. Like that'll never happen again. I know. You know, I know it's crazy. It's crazy how much this, that it's been a year and how much has happened in the past year. Oh, anywho. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So this week we're back to letters. Do you want to just jump into it? Sure. All right. Dear Trauma Tapes, I recently discovered your podcast and so much of what you two talked about resonated with me. For years, I've been quiet, not sharing my story and shoving my feelings down. Now that I'm living on my own for the first time in my adult life, I have a chance to dive in and really focus on myself and recovery. I grew up as an only child, first generation in the U.S. My parents are Filipino. They were good parents, and you would say I had a pretty nice childhood. For some reason, I always gravitated towards and dated, emotionally unavailable or toxic guys. I saw it as exciting or challenging, I guess. When I met my ex-husband in graduate school, three females warned me about him, which should have been red flags, but I chose to ignore it. Fast forward 22 years and I'm now divorced. I have two beautiful daughters, 18 and 21. My older daughter has struggled with an eating disorder, depression, and anxiety, and had a suicide attempt last February, right before COVID. I also just found out in 2020 from one of my bridesmaids that my ex-husband propositioned her and another bridesmaid weeks before our wedding. They chose not to tell me and didn't want to ruin the wedding. Finding this out now, I am actually not surprised. 
There were many nights he would come home late from work and clearly had been drinking. He's been arrested twice for DUI. I just never rocked the boat because I thought at the time I needed to stay for the kids and I was not working enough to stay home and raise them. Looking back, I don't think my ex was very faithful. There there were several random situations in which his behavior was inappropriate. The worst was being at a public venue together and him disappearing for hours and me and the other couple searching for him only to find him snuggled up to another woman intoxicated. He ended up getting arrested for drunken disorderly conduct and attempted assault towards me and I didn't press charges. That was the beginning of the end of our marriage. I think to this day he blames me for his arrest. We had two children and our oldest started having mental health issues in 2018. Family life got more tense and his alcoholism and anger towards my daughter and myself started to get worse. My daughter ends up struggling with anorexia and needed to go back into rehab. So the thought of leaving him gets put on the back burner. I felt guilty for not being a good enough mother and thinking her eating disorder was somehow my fault. He doesn't understand mental illness and thinks that it's something that can be cured. There were times I was scared for her the way he would yell at her, trying to yell some sense into her. I was scared for myself to stand up to him. I did what I could do to get her healthy and keep it together, but I fell into a deep depression. I basically went to work, came home, did what I needed to do for the kids, went to sleep, and then repeated it all the next day. In 2019, I lost my closest coworker suddenly from an autoimmune disorder. She was only 43. This shook me. Her death was sudden and tragic, and it took me a long time to process. I was also treating her sick father who had heart failure. Six weeks later, my parents are on vacation 4th of July weekend with their friends. My mom calls me crying, saying dad is cold and he won't wake up. I knew it was bad, so I drive 45 minutes to their resort. I walked in and my mother and her friends are crying in the main room and I knew he was gone. I walked into the bedroom and my father's dead body is on the floor. The paramedics attempted CPR, but he passed away in his sleep. Being an only child, I was in task mode for all the things that needed to be done after someone passes away. My mother was so dependent on my father for everything, so I had to take care of a lot. He chose to be cremated. The funeral home said we could see his body one last time. So it's me, my mom, and my husband that go to say goodbye. My mother is sprawled out crying and telling him how much she loved him. My husband had his hand on my shoulder. The only thing that is going on in my mind is I am so fucking miserable. There is no way I'm staying in this marriage crying over his dead body. I have to get the fuck out. My dad's death was my light bulb clarifying moment, and I knew then I needed to end this marriage. Six weeks after my dad passed, my deceased co-worker's father passed away. So three deaths in 2019 and the realization that I needed to get a divorce. I'm in therapy and discussing this with my therapist that I want to leave, but I feel guilty because of my kids. Months pass. February 2020, my daughter attempts suicide at college, ends up back in rehab. This takes a toll on the family. My husband starts to get stressed, and something about the way he was texting me was scaring me. So I said to my mom, I'm not going home. I'm going to live with you. That was the beginning of my separation. After my daughter is discharged from rehab, she decides she doesn't feel safe to go back home and moves in with my mother as well. 2020 was hard on so many of us because of COVID. But for me, I was moving forward and making changes in my life that I've been wanting to do for years. People would tell me how much lighter I looked. Even my therapist noticed. Now that I am living by myself, I am processing all of this trauma that has happened over the years. I feel most days I'm doing an okay job. But then when I share my story with someone, their reaction sometimes triggers me because it's usually to say to me, oh my gosh, wow, you have been through so much. How do you do it? When I think about their reaction, sometimes it makes me sad. It makes me anxious. It makes me feel overwhelmed. I feel like I take two steps forward and then four steps back. I have also started dating and seem to be repeating the same pattern of going after emotionally unavailable men, jumping into things too quickly, but then ending it before it gets too messy. I'm realizing I'm not ready to be in a relationship. I haven't been in a healthy romantic relationship my whole adult life. So my questions for you and what I continue to ask myself when I start to spiral are, Will I ever heal from all this trauma? Will I ever trust a man again? Can I forgive myself for staying and putting up with it all? Can I ever forgive him? Can I stop feeling guilty for my daughter's mental illness? That's it. I know. It's a lot. It's a lot, a lot, a lot. Layers and layers and layers. Yeah. What are your initial thoughts? Congratulations for getting out of a terrible situation. Mm -hmm. Um. You should be proud of yourself. 
Mm -hmm. And you need to take some time to be proud that you were able to find the strength to do that. Yeah. Especially during this past year. Yeah. Brutal situation. Yeah. Like on all fronts. Um, Let's talk about shame. Okay. (laughs) Cause I feel like this is, this is the sticking point, right? I mean, there's so much here we can talk about each of these layers and I do want to, I want to look at each of these questions Let's just answer them really quickly. Will I ever heal from all this trauma? Yes. Will I ever trust a man again? Yes. Can I forgive myself for staying and putting it up with it? Yes. Can I ever forgive him? Maybe not. Can I stop feeling guilty for my daughter's mental illness? Yes. Done. (laughs) Okay, bye. I (laughs) I don't think you have to forgive him, but. Exactly. Yeah. It's not about him. It's about you. Right. We And we will get to that because I think that's really important. But the shame thing, um, you are not to blame for anyone else's struggle. All of those words are underlined and italicized, right? Like yeah. you, even your kids, this is something that comes up a lot in trauma research. And um, I think it's really important to understand the more that we understand about trauma, sometimes sometimes it gets worse before it gets better in the sense that like, I think a lot of people are are now that people are talking about trauma more often, I think it's making people more afraid sometimes, because especially when we talk about like developmental trauma, parents will, you know, I'll see a client who's trying to work on their own trauma. And then I, we start talking about developmental trauma and they're like, oh shit, am I traumatizing my kids? Right. So the awareness, I think sometimes brings a little bit of fear with it, but okay, meet that fear and face it. And the, the answer is yes, <laughs> because we traumatize each other. Like any, any, one of the things that I think makes any relationship like precious is the, the vulnerability, the real vulnerability, not just the, like, I'm choosing to tell you secrets or stuff like that, but the fact that you could be hurt by the other person. And I've heard so many people that are in developmental trauma research say like, yes, you traumatize your kids and you give them the tools to heal. Like focusing on avoiding that I think is not the right focus because we can traumatize each other in ways that are big and small. One of the reasons why I hate the distinction between capital T and lowercase t trauma is that it pretends like there's a hierarchy, like big, big T trauma is the only trauma that matters and little T trauma doesn't. But, you know, when we're talking about developing, it's possible that you were by nature, biologically, a super sensitive kid and your parents didn't give you what you needed. And they didn't, you couldn't communicate that. You didn't know it consciously. They didn't see it because they couldn't see it. And that is what is the setting for what forms your attachment style, right? And so that could be traumatic for you. You didn't get what you need. And then, so that, that shapes the way you relate to other people. Mm -hmm. You can't avoid that as a parent because that just involves like being around a human and making mistakes. You know what I mean? Right. That doesn't mean you are to blame though. Yeah. So I would think the only way to try to, if the fear is that you would traumatize your own children Mm -hmm. or traumatize other people, Mm -hmm. I I mean, that, that gives the impression that you're doing it consciously. Right. Exactly. And we're not always right. Like, right. And if you're trying to manipulate or control your behavior in order to not traumatize, then you're not being authentic. You're not being yourself which is, could also be traumatizing. Right. 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 Absolutely. Cause then your kids get this idea that you're being reserved or you're secretive and you're not like, who knows? We we don't know. Trauma is much more complicated than like, than we think it is. Cause I think the examples we use when we talk about it are extreme. And so we think it's only extreme and that's just not true. Right. Bessel van der Kolk always says like, if, if nobody delighted in you, that is an initial fundamental trauma that's written into your development. If nobody. Oh, wow. I know. Wow. And I think it was, um, sorry, was it Maya Angelou or someone, or some Oprah, I think was talking at one point, I think it was Maya Angelou said, like, if a child walks into the room and you don't have like joy on your face, eyes, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I know it was Oprah, but I don't know who it was that said that. Yeah. yeah. I really, I like remember sitting in the kitchen. <laughs> right. Episode. Yeah. Right. Anyway, sorry. But that's like, we don't think of that because we're like, well, you didn't go to combat. What the fuck is your problem? And it's like, well, you know, that's, that doesn't, that does not capture it, right? You needed to be delighted in as a child and you weren't. And that could be because your parents aren't wired that way or because they were, you know, economically strapped and stressed out. And so they didn't, um, 
you know, they didn't have time or energy to like delight is like a luxury, right? Like, right. Um, that does not mean intentional harm, but it, but harm was done and that harm can be repaired. Like that's the other thing. Like trauma is not a death sentence. It is, you know, it is an experience that is probably one that most humans, if not all humans have at one point in their life. And it is, you, you can recover Mm -hmm. and heal and actually grow from it, you know? So, um, I would also think that if her daughter has done the work um, in rehab more than once, mm-hmm. her daughter would understand that it, it's, yeah, there's no one to blame for her mental illness or eating disorder. Right. And her path is her path. And I, I know that that is, um, that's very easy to say, but when you're living it, that's, it's a whole other thing. Right. But, um, there's a, there's a super common phrase in Al-Anon, you didn't cause it, you can't control it and you can't cure it. Those are the three C's. Right. Didn't cause it, can't control it, cannot cure it. If your daughter had lupus, you may have a passing thought of, you know, if I had given her more broccoli, maybe she wouldn't have had an autoimmune disease. Right. Right. But it would be a passing thought and you would pretty quickly recognize that it's irrational because you of course did not cause your, your daughter's lupus. You did not, you can't control her lupus and you also can't cure it. Right. Like those are just, uh, we, we look at physical or biological things as if they're different than psychological things. And they're not, it's the same nervous system reacting. Right. Like yeah. Yeah. You did not, you did not cause this. Yeah. She had a stressful upbringing. Right. And if you look at the ACEs study, the adverse childhood experiences um, those things probably contributed in some way to who she is now, but they're not determining factors. And you can turn Gabor Mate talks about turning aces into um, advantages. Oh, like you, the path that you walk is you have some control over that, right? After the things that have happened to you. So, did your daughter grow up in a stressful environment? It sounds like it. Yeah. Is that your fault? No. Sounds to me like you were doing the absolute best you could. And that is yeah. all we can ask for ourselves and other people, I think. And also your daughter's 21. And you know, you can sit down with your daughter and say, mm-hmm. listen, I, I, I know things were stressful around here. Right. I, I know that your father yelled at you, right. you know, because he was afraid right. because you weren't well. Right. And I know that I shouldn't have let that happen. Or, you know, or you know, it's not like the work is over and, you know, that close the book and, you know, everyone's going to carry that one story for the rest of their lives. Like there's still time for conversations and understanding. Totally. I think that like that idea of like circling back and explaining to like adult children, especially is probably one of the, that's probably more healing than anything else. Right. Because you can show and model for your kid that like, look, this is my story. Here are the mistakes that I made here's what I would do differently. Here's why I made those mistakes. You can give an account of yourself right? Um, in a way that, it, and it sounds like you're perfectly willing to do that. Maybe I already have. That is um, enormous, enormously important, even if you haven't gone through trauma, right? Seeing your parents as humans that make mistakes and are able to admit that is, I mean, that can change your whole outlook on the world in a positive way. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a gift. Mm-hmm. That's a gift when you can see your parents as people, right. <laughs> as human beings, right. uh, you know, right. that they make mistakes. And yeah, that, that's a gift. Totally. And I think, so I think you could focus on that stuff. What are you giving your daughter now rather than focus on the past and what you made a mistake about and talk to her about those things at, you know, tell her, I wish I had done differently in the following ways that could be healing for both of you, you know? Right. Um, the, this other thing though, like I, people, this is a missing thread when we talk about shame because we know that it's sticky, but we don't know exactly why. One of the reasons, especially in the in the presence of trauma, that shame is really sticky. Why do we this? Is why we keep pulling it close to us is that like so trauma upends our lives. It makes it makes things that made sense not make sense anymore. And this letter writer has lots and lots of trauma. Um, we make it our fault because it gives us the illusion of control. Mm. We, it is easier to internalize the whole thing and talk about what you did wrong at every step of the way than it is to admit that the world is terrifying. 
and that things like this can happen and you can trust somebody who ends up not being trustworthy and you can, you know, be abused by somebody who you thought loved you and all these things, right? Like that is fundamentally a scarier thing to believe and admit. And so we internalize and that makes it really hard to let go of the shame because the shame in a weird way starts like feels like a lifeline or an organizing force. You know what I mean? Interesting. Yeah. So the shame is linked to the myth that you can control Mm. every little thing that happens. Yeah. Cause put it this way. Like if you, this, this happens all the time with, um, with people who have dealt with sexual assault, like if you can go through that, that circumstance and say like, well, here's the five things that I did to make that happen, then right. you can ensure that it will never happen again. But you can't, but you can't. So, but that feels like a productive, like, or, you know, grounding thing to do. Like, let me figure out exactly wh- how many mistakes I made and you know, the brain is in hypervigilance mode. So it, it's, it loves that like, okay, cool. Let's, let's pull this all apart and, and figure out exactly what you did wrong, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, it's very strategic. Yep. Totally. It's brilliant. Like it's brilliant. Yeah. It's, just, it's also not true. Interesting. Yeah. So I think like, if you can sit with, with that truth, that may let you kind of put the shame down a little bit because it's not actually serving you. And I think like, this is another thing that that people don't talk about when they talk about shame. There's a moment for shame, just like there's a moment for anger. There's a moment for guilt, right? Because it enables us to take stock and understand the ways in which we were responsible for what went wrong. Right. And Mm -hmm. as you point out, there's things you would do differently if you had another shot. And so I think it's important to recognize that. So you don't continue to repeat the pattern, but we need to understand that shame is a moment, not a place to like live and marinate in, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's no reason to continue feeling shame. It has no use for you. Well, there's no strength in acting out of it or or trying to act out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like a, you know, a bad part of town. You just should drive through. Right. Don't stop. Right. Don't go to a diner. Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) That looks like it might be interesting. (laughs) And then the thing that, um, that kind of hit me when it, when it comes to other people's compassion, I think that maybe this is triggering you because you don't have a lot of self-compassion. And so when, when you're in this mode and you're pulling yourself apart and shaming yourself for everything, there's something like a little bit satisfying in that and beating yourself up that way. But when someone comes in and is compassionate, it knocks you out of that modality, you know? Mm. Yeah. And it feels like it's out of alignment. And I wonder if the reason you're having a strong emotional response is because self-compassion is actually the thing that you need. And so when someone else offers it to you, it's like that, you know, when, um, if you, this will happen, if you call me, if I'm like trying to keep my shit together, cause I'm really emotional and trying to like keep that at bay and not cry or whatever. If you call me and you're like, Hey, how's it going? 1000% cry. Right. 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 Because I trust you and I know you feel compassion and that I can cry in front of you. Like, so I think that that may be part of what's going on. Yeah. If I, if that was me, like I would know, I would also know if I called you that I wouldn't be able to bullshit you. (laughs) Right. Right. So, you know, it's like when someone shows you kindness or compassion, it's hard to bullshit that it's hard to, you know, because it's care, you know, it is care and they're right. You have been through so much. Yeah. And I, and I also like, I've had, you know, she didn't talk about this in the letter, but like, I've had situations where people will say that to me and I'm angry instantly. Yeah. Instead of sad, I'm just like, shut up. Like (laughs) (laughs) it's a defense mechanism. Yeah. Just rejection. Cause you're like, I can't, I can't with this right now. Sometimes compassion feels, um, I don't know the words, like not the right thing when you're trying to blast through something, you know what I mean? Well, when you're trying so hard to hold it together and you, you just have this, like, you know, you're holding everything so tightly. Yeah. Yeah. Compassion feels like someone's like sticking a pin in your balloon. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And it's, um, it's, I've been doing this. Um, I can't remember. Stop me if I've talked about this here before, cause I can't remember. Um, but I've, I've been doing this thing cause I'm learning the more I, I, learn that if we don't have self-compassion, we hit a total plateau in our healing. Did I talk about this? No. 
And so you can heal to a certain extent and then you'll just continue to beat yourself up and pick the scab and believe bad things about yourself and carry around a self-defeating narrative and all that kind of stuff, which are not just like psychologically inconvenient things, but they actually literally get in your way, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've been doing this exercise with people where I have to, I have them imagine their like sacred safe space, right? So like put themselves in a situation where they're like a little kid and they come home with some like wound, right? Someone at school did something mean or whatever. And what would they have needed? What would that space, what would have been the absolute ideal situation? Like, yeah. You know, would it have been like a warm kitchen with like cookies and somebody to like snuggle you up and ask you what happened and help you make a plan or like, or would it have been a space where you could be alone and like break things and listen to loud music or whatever, whatever it is for you, create that safe space. And then when you're beating yourself up in your mind, go to that space and give yourself in your mind what you would have needed. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for some reason, when I was doing this, when I was making this up and and doing it with a group, the first thing that came to mind was like Mary Poppins would be in the room. You know what I mean? And that's such an interesting like archetype. I know. I don't even like, I don't think I've thought of Mary Poppins in like 35 years. <laughs> I'm 39. So like, I don't know where the hell that came from, but I think like thinking about it, like Mary Poppins is very like, um, she's such an interesting archetype. She's very like motherly, but not in like an overly affectionate way. She's also very like solution oriented, which is totally, I'm totally into that. You know. <laughs> She's got a plan. <laughs> bag her. She's got all the shit in the bag that you need. <laughs> Fix it. That's great. Very put together. It's super. But that was just randomly the first thing that came to mind. And so now, when I'm like beating myself up, I like imagine myself going in this room. I have this whole visualization of what it looks like and what's there and what the lighting is like and all that stuff. Detail is so important. And um, what would Mary Poppins say instead of what would my mean voice say to me, which is a nasty thing. Right. What would Mary Poppins say, you know? Um, So I think practicing that and doing some of that instead of focusing on this narrative of everything you've done wrong could be a way of like actually reparenting yourself and giving you some stuff maybe that you didn't get when you were growing up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I just picture like Mary Poppins, like sitting in the corner of your bedroom, but (laughs) like waiting, who I don't know. Opening that bag with the umbrella and like all that. Being like, here you go, you know, this is the things you need. That's a really good exercise. I, I have no idea where I would go. I need to think about that. Yeah, I need to create that. Yeah. Super interesting. And you can't judge it and get as detailed as you possibly can because that matters. And the more vivid it is, the quicker you will be able to go there in your brain. Yeah. To access that space. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I think so often when we're talking about changing our thought patterns or healing, we, we are so focused on the past and trying to like tweak things and unravel stuff and like straighten things out and iron the narrative or do whatever in the past. And that there's something to be said for doing that for sure. And like hundreds of years of research talking about why that's important, but you also need to be focused on the present and the future, right? Right. um, How can you give yourself new practices to replace those, you know, those nasty narratives in your head? If you don't do that, like knowing that you have a nasty narrative is helpful, but that's like only half of the work, right? Like right. you have to replace it. Otherwise your brain just goes there automatically because it's been going there for your whole life, you know? Right. Right. That's great. Anyway, that's kind of a tangent, but um, I think that giving yourself that self-compassion might be a way and going along with that, like I, you know, we talk about this a lot and I just have to say it again, the process is not linear and it has not been a long time. No, like it doesn't sound like it's even been one year. Um, right. Right. So will I ever heal from all this trauma? Yes. But you need to give yourself time and understand that it's not a linear process. Mm-hmm. The, um, one of the fundamental symptoms of trauma is disconnection from yourself and distrust of yourself. And, So believing that you can heal is actually a healing thing. Oh, okay. If you can, because our tendency is to spiral and say like, oh, you know, I did this for years with anxiety. I'll never get better. It's always going to be like this. It's going to limit my life, blah, 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 blah. That's a very like tempting spiral to go down. But I have to trust 
that I will heal. That's a way harder thing to do, you know? Yeah. Just to have that concept. Yeah. Yeah. That you're, you know, if something's coming up again and you're having an emotional response to it and it's six months out, that's okay. doesn't mean you're failing. It means there's something coming up that you couldn't have dealt with until this very moment. And now you can, you know? Right. Right. And, and, you know, if she can't do it for herself, like what would she say to her daughter? Right. Right. How would she guide or help her daughter if her daughter came to her and said, will I ever heal from all this trauma? Right. There's a sentence in here. She says, I feel most days I'm doing an okay job. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you are still standing and doing anything is a testament to your incredible resilience. Yep. So you're not just doing an okay job. Yep. You may not be thriving yet, but you can get to that. I think another thing you can do kind of before you go to sleep is set up a couple of things where um, you, not just a gratitude list in the sense of like, I'm grateful for external things, but like, what did I do that today that went well? What am I proud of myself for? Yeah. And those can be really small things or they can be more significant things, but it helps reframe again, the narrative that you're telling yourself that you're a failure, you know? Right. This letter is dripping with that failure and shame. Well, I mean, it, it was 22 years. Right. That's a long time yeah. to be in a situation that um, from the beginning yeah. wasn't supportive, loving, yep. healthy, yep. kind, mm-hmm. all of those things that you need to be for yourself now. Right. And those are bare minimum. Right. And it, okay. So going to the question, can I forgive myself for staying and putting up with it all? Please. Yes. Because I think like when you, this happens all the time, hindsight is such a pain in the ass. No one ever says that, but it's true. When you're out of the situation, you're looking back, you're reconnected with yourself. You're in a stable place. It's so easy to be like, what the hell's wrong with me? Why didn't I do X, Y, and Z? But you're looking at that from a different place. Right. And you need to take that into account in that moment. And this is true. Even just in these little fragments of your story, I am 100% confident that you were doing the best you could with the information and the resources you had at the time. Yep. And sometimes the path out is very long and that, that is just the way it is. You were filing it away, right? You were putting up with it maybe, but you were also filing it away and knowing and and strengthening that inner knowing that you need to leave and that you deserve better. We talked once before, but this is always like interesting to talk about. There's this thing in the brain called the Mohawk of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. which runs through the midline of the brain. And when you're in a situation where you've got abuse going on, the very first thing, one or one of the fundamental things that happens is you become disconnected from that part of your brain because your brain is so taken up with trying to orient itself and understand what's going on and deal with the ongoing stress and threat. And so you become on a neurobiological level disconnected with your sense of self. Right. And that permeates every single thing that has to do with your sense of self. So that could be your sense of your own body. So people will get literally like clumsier because they have no sense of their own body in space. Um, you have an inability to make decisions, right? A belief in yourself, like all of those things, like you, you, you those neurons are not connecting to that part of your brain. So from a biological level, you, it wasn't possible to leave until you did. Exactly. You have to forgive yourself for being a, a biological creature, you know? Right. Right. I love that. Yeah. I love that, 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 that allows forgiveness that allows yeah. compassion that allows, I think of it like a fire alarm being pulled for 22 years like, yeah. and the sirens going off. Right. And you're putting pillows over your ears and you're trying to live and eat and sleep. And, you know, all of which you did, you did, you had two children, you know, and you had your light bulb moment. You had that moment where you, some, you mustered the strength and the energy and the knowledge to know that this was no longer feasible for you. Mm -hmm. Totally. And you trusted that and you got out. Right which is tremendously hard. I was listening to a podcast this morning. It was uh, Brene Brown. I have to look up who she's talking to. I'm sorry. Um, Edith Egger on recognizing um, the choices. This is scrolling and very slowly choices and gifts 
in our lives. And she's a Holocaust survivor. Oh, um, she writes about, and this moment is well-documented in in other people's work as well, where um, like Viktor Frankl talked about this, when um, the camps were liberated, a lot of people walked out triumphant and then 10 minutes later walked back in and sat down inside the camp. When you're given freedom after you've had it for so long, it is terrifying. Right. And we see this with all populations, like people who have been incarcerated for a long time often recidivate almost immediately. And they will talk about the confusing thing of wanting to be out, having spent every single day incarcerated, wanting to get out. And then as soon as they get out, the world is so overwhelming and scary that they can't imagine how they might survive. Wow. So be gentle with yourself, you know? Yeah. Take it day by day. Yeah. Moment by moment. Yeah. The thing about um, other relationships, we all need to, in the self-help community and everywhere else, ease up with the pattern finding, right? Like, again, taking responsibility and ownership and noticing patterns is super important, but please don't label yourself as someone who is incapable of having a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. Your narrative, you said a couple times in the letter, I haven't been in a healthy relationship my whole adult life. Okay. Fact, but that's not your whole story. Right. The more you tell yourself that, um, the, the more you will believe it. And it's not actually true because you've been in healthy relationships, just not romantic ones. You've had friends, you've had family members, you've had, right, like coworkers that you've connected with very deeply. Um, you are capable of a healthy romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And it is possible to trust a person again. Again, like to quote Bessel van der Kolk for the 800th time, (laughs) we, we harm each other. Like we create our own trauma. We harm in community and we heal in community. Wow. So that is a critical part of the, the process is learning how to trust again. But I think the first thing is to be able to trust yourself. Exactly. Exactly. And then how she didn't ask, how will I ever trust a man again? But, um, I think becoming aware of what your deal breakers are, how to articulate your needs. Those are all really important. Um, and allowing yourself the, like the hope of that instead of the damnation of like, I am broken. I've had all this broken relationships. Therefore this will be impossible for me. Right. Would it help to visualize like what that might look like? Totally. Not to make a list of like what you're looking for, but just to kind of mm-hmm. imagine how it would feel. Yes, totally. I think that's actually way, way less limiting and more important than making a list, which is, you know, that has its own benefits too. But like, how would it feel? What would it feel like to be in a supportive relationship? Right. That's super important. Totally. Right. And the more you do that, the more you're, you're sending your brain into the future and the hope instead of saying, I'm broken, I'm broken, I'm broken. I've always been broken. Right. I'll always be broken. Totally. Right. And be specific about that. What would it feel like? Right. What does that look like when you get home and you've had a hard day at work? What does that person do for you? Again, it's like it's similar to the imagine a safe space, you know? Yeah. And also like, listen, this is another thing we need to talk about. If you have stuff, like if you have baggage about cheating or whatever, it is 1000% okay to bring that into the room and negotiate that with your new partner. Mm-hmm. You don't have to hide that stuff all. And de- we have this idea that like, you have to like go hide in a basement when you've had like a breakup and like figure out all your stuff so that you come out as if you never had a problem. <laughs> right. And that's not, it's not realistic. And it's also not, it, it can be like a healing prospect to sit down and be like, okay, here's the thing. I have a really hard time when um, I know that somebody is spending a lot of time with a female coworker or whatever. Right. Um, how can we figure out some structures around this so I can feel more comfortable, but you don't feel like your privacy is like impinged upon, you know? Exactly. And that will probably change. I might need a little bit more in the beginning. Right. And then as I start to feel more comfortable, you know, I, I could, that can ease up a little bit, but totally. absolutely. Totally. We're not, you know, 12 years old. Like we've all lived and w- right. we have bumps and bruises and, you yeah. know, wounds and, right. and it's, you're right. It's okay to say, Hey, this, this is a little, I'm, I'm I have some sensitivity around this. Yeah. Can you help me out? And you need a partner who's willing to help you out, not to say, you know, the first red flag, if someone's like, nope, I'm not doing that. Right. Well, okay, then move on. Right. Totally. That's so disrespectful. Totally. Yeah. 
And again, like to go back to the physical, like if you were in a situation where you're like, okay, I can't eat, um, I can't eat tomatoes. They, uh, I'm allergic to tomatoes. Right. If your partner was like, I mean, that's just a fact that's acceptable. And if your partner, right. was like, well, you have to eat tomatoes, like I'm sorry. <laughs> right. that actually does not make any sense. Like, what are you talking about? Why don't we give ourselves that grace when it comes to this stuff too? Right. You know, like, yeah. And it also might open a possibility for whoever that other person is to be like, oh, like, this is actually great. I've never thought about this. Here's something that I have a sensitivity to. Yeah. What can we do around? How can we work with that as a team? Because then you're, you're actually strengthening the relationship. Yeah. You're both invested in it. Right. Right. And, and every opportunity that you then have to like, to, to practice that with each other will be a moment where you're like, wow, this relationship is actually really strong. Right we negotiated this thing and we're handling it. Right. Like, right. That's a beautiful thing. Right. But if you don't give someone the information, if you don't give them the roadmap, then you can't expect them to be on board. Right. Right. Totally. Then you'll be disappointed. You'll be frustrated and you'll beat yourself up. Right. Cause your needs aren't getting met. Totally. There's a couple of things like emotionally unavailable, jumping into things too quickly, ending it before it gets too messy. Okay. So when we're looking at patterns, there's, there's a lot of work to be done. Notice the pattern. And then what does the pattern mean? What does it mean? What does emotionally unavailable mean? Right? Like, how does that, how is that showing up for you? Because asking that question gives you way more information. Does that make sense? When she's thinking of a potential partner and she describes them as emotionally unavailable, like how does that how yeah. does she define emotionally unavailable? Totally. Because it could be different for, right. Right. okay. Yep. Cause I'll see this all the time. Like there's these words that get kind of tossed around and then, and we get very comfortable using them, but then we don't actually like think critically about what they mean to us. Right. So I'll have a client who's like, I can't do vulnerability. And I'm like, okay, cool. What does that mean? Yeah. And they're like, well, I don't know. Well, okay. No wonder you can't do it because you don't know what you're even aiming at, you know? <laughs> like, right. Right. You know, um, get very like clear about what these things mean, you know, jumping into things too quickly. I'm very um, wary of like timelines when it comes to stuff, because there's a lot of noise out there about how, like, you know, if you had a breakup, you have to be single for the, you know, half that there's like a formula. There is a formula, right. Or whatever, (laughs) which just doesn't, I mean, that's just arbitrary, right? It depends you're at a stage in your life again, where you're not 21 anymore. And so the timeline looks a lot different for dating and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, you know? Yeah. And I think as you get more and more clear on um, trusting yourself, you'll get more clear on what you're looking for from someone else and you'll be better able to recognize it when you see it. And therefore things might move fast. Right. Right. And why, why is that necessarily a bad thing? Right. Okay. I think we answered all the questions. Will I ever heal from all this trauma? Yes, but it's not a linear thing and that's okay. Will I ever trust a man again? Yes. Invite trust into your life. Can I forgive myself for staying and putting up with it all? Yes. Can I ever forgive him? This is one we didn't talk about. You don't have to. Mm -hmm. Here's what you do have to do. Find peace. That has nothing to do with him or forgiveness, right? Like, I think we have this narrative marching around that says, if you don't forgive, then, you know, you're still angry and there's something wrong with you. And, you know, no, there are, there are unforgivable things. Yeah. Yes. A person who did not treat you like a human being. That's right. Unforgivable. Right. And you're, you're the job of trying to understand him and why he did the things he did is over. Right. That's not your responsibility anymore. Totally. You've and got that, your, you got yourself away from bad behavior and that's all that matters. Yep. And there's peace in that. Mm-hmm. If, if when it comes to forgiveness, again, like I think this is a place where it, it, it depends on what you mean, right? Like if forgiveness means you've let it go yourself so that you don't have, you don't feel trapped by it, then that's, that's something to work on. Right. But right. I don't hear a lot of that in your letter, at least, you know, yeah, that's a good point because it, it could mean a couple different things. Can I forgive him? Right. Internally or forgive him out loud or to my kids. The other thing is that like in order to be forgiven, somebody needs to apologize and they need to mean it. Right. 
it doesn't sound like this person is willing or able to offer that up, you know? Right. Right. So that's a thing. This, and then this is the last thing. Um, I feel like I've been rambling. I never pay attention to the time. <laughs> that's okay. The, um, could our narratives around what we've been through be triumphant instead of defeating? Oh, right. When, when, when this story is not all your fault and you can imagine it like a hero's journey, just to borrow from Joseph Campbell, like these are the things that the universe, like, you know, dealt out to you and you have handled each one of them with grace. Yep. That is a goddamn triumph. Yep. You're not actually broken. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're traumatized and you have traces in your life and that you're having emotional responses means that you are triumphant and human and real. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's completely reframing it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you're a goddamn triumph letter writer. <laughs> you are a triumph. You should be very proud of yourself. Yeah. You've done a lot. And like you said, it has not been that long. Right. You've been out of it for about a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know that's a break. Totally. And I know that part of that is that you don't want to feel this way anymore. And I, I, all I have is like, I want to give you a hug because it sucks, but you won't always feel this way, you know? No, no. I I see you as having so much potential and it's exciting. Totally. You know, totally. One of the very earliest clients that I ever had was in her sixties. Have I told this before? Hmm. And she, um, she had been in a wildly abusive relationship and had to stay financially and for her kids had to stay where there was not an option out. And um, finally, as soon as everything was all like settled up, she, she left. Mm-hmm. And she was absolutely terrified. You know, she's in her sixties and she was having all these fears about like, it's, is it too late for me? How could I possibly ever find love now? Like all these other things. And she, within a couple of months found this man who was, who was a widow and widower, widower, widow, whichever one. Widower. <laughs> widower. And yeah. he, they absolutely fell head over heels in love with each other. He was the supportive, beautiful partner that she had always wanted and deserved. And they went about traveling the world. Wow. That's awesome. It was uh, so amazing to see because she just like, actually, she literally like bloomed. Yeah. And that's, that's totally possible for you, whatever your age is, whatever time, however much you've been through, however beaten down you feel like that is still possible. Yeah. You know, I picture like the caged bird, like, yeah. Taking off, like flying. Totally. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. There's, I've been talking, I lied about this being the last thing. This will be the last thing (laughs) (laughs) that, um, I've been reading and talking a lot about the hope circuit, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for planning and dreaming and imagining and all that stuff. And it happens to not be able to be online at the same time as the circuit that's responsible for fear and depression and all these other things. And so if you can engage with the hope circuit, you can actually like regulate your own brain activity, Mm -hmm. which is healing and heals your whole central nervous system. And so it's really important life skill. Um, and we do it naturally as kids. And then as adults, we stop doing it because we get practical and we stop being silly and all that other stuff. And so, um, the, the research in positive psychology from Martin Seligman and a couple of other people, Dan Tomasulo talk about how to re-engage with the hope circuit by planning your future. Yeah. And I think sometimes for people who, who have had trauma, that's too big of a gap right? To go yeah. from traumatized to planning your future in this happy freeway is just not possible, especially if you've, if, you know, hope is a luxury for right. been struggling for so long. And so um, the thing that I've been having people do as a way to get to that planning for your future is to imagine a ridiculous dream. So like get into the silliest, and I've been doing this as a practice, like in the shower, every time I get in the shower, I imagine a ridiculous dream. And I will literally pick the first thing that comes into my head and it will yeah. be like completely out of the range of possibility. And that's on purpose because it feels safer to do. Yeah. But then you get into the specifics and the particulars and you're often running into this imaginary thing that's not real and isn't going to be real. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I think it accomplishes a couple things. One, it lets us engage with hope before we get, you know, knocked down by the practical part of our mind that says like, you're 39, you can't be a ballerina, you know, like whatever. <laughs> Right. 
but also like it, um, it helps us play and see that when things don't work out, we still survive. Yeah. Cause I think sometimes coming out of trauma, especially relationship trauma, like you're, you're like, if the next thing doesn't work out, it will end me. And that's just not true. No. It also accesses creativity. Right. Yep. It's in the same, same circle. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Totally. When and you can that, plan it and see it and, and visualize and yeah. And it changes yeah. your day-to-day experience. You become more hopeful. You start noticing hope in a different way because your brain is like primed for that now. It's like a different wavelength. Right. Yep. I'm obsessed. Anyway. Okay. That's all I have to say. That was good. Very helpful. For real this time. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You can always say more. <laughs> But good luck, letter writer. Thank you for writing in. Yes. Be proud of yourself. Yeah. You've been through a lot. You've done a lot. Yep. You're strong. Right. Okay. Tiny little joys. Speaking of the hope circuit. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. My tiny little joy <laughs> is that I went to, I went to, I went shopping this morning and um, I saw that they have, I don't think we've ever talked about the fact that we have celiac, which oh, kind of yeah. makes our baking situation a, a little, gives it a little more, I don't know, weight. I didn't um, think that. That's true. I know. We, we don't even mention it. But um, so I was in the supermarket and I noticed that they um, have gluten-free matzah, which like comes out this time of year. And I was so excited, you know. I was like, oh my God, it's gluten-free matzah time. So I got my box and I, <laughs> I came home. <laughs> And then I realized that matzah in and of itself, it, no offense to anyone, um, is, you know, not very exciting and, you know, bland. And I realized that my tiny little joy is the butter that I put on top of the matzah, <laughs> the obscene amount of butter that I put on top of the matzah and that matzah is simply a, a butter vehicle <laughs> and, um, carry gold butter, which I have every single day, you know, on toast, uh, with my coffee is my tiny little joy and makes me very happy. I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's fabulous. Yep. I think it's so funny. Like, again, like back to the celiac thing, like, I think when, when like the things I like to eat are absolutely bland and plain. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I will be more adventurous sometimes, but like what comfort food or things I get excited about are like, you know, crack. If someone came out with a gluten-free saltine, I'd be like over the moon. I know. A gluten-free Triscuit. Like, oh, that's why it. can't they do that? You know, I think I would scream if I saw that in the supermarket <laughs> with joy. I think Triscuits are like pure 100% gluten. <laughs> they are. <laughs> but I think like when you've been sick for like literally your entire life, I've been sick to your stomach. Like I think people that don't have that experience don't understand that like a saltine is a <laughs> beautiful thing, you know? Well, cause that's what we always had when we were sick, you know, and ironically that made us more sick, right. but it was saltines and ginger ale. Like that was like the go-to like, oh, yeah. you're sick food. Totally. And then you find out that the saltines are actually not they're, helping. They're the thing. <laughs> <laughs> or the poison. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh, I do love you have, Do you have the butter thing? Do you like it as much as I do? Oh my God. Yeah, totally. Every morning. I know. Ate a half of a Canyon Ranch gluten-free bagel with butter on it. I know. I should probably just put the butter on my hand at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Slice off. Nobody, nobody's watching, so who cares? <laughs> People put it in their coffee, which I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I've tried that. I'm not into it. I feel like that would like take away from the, the joy for me. Yeah. Cause I like them separately. Right. It's the you saltiness. Know. Totally. Right. Totally. Well, that's a great one. <laughs> but I also love the other thing I love about that is that that is something in your, have you noticed the tiny little joys that now that you're like hooked in that you notice them more? Oh yeah. Yeah, and that's huge because that changes your just way of seeing the world, which is cool. And but too, like that's something that happens every single day. I know. Like, that's how cool is that? Yeah. Well, we talked about the coffee, and this is like what goes with the coffee. It's right. it's just it's a necessary part uh, way to start the day. Yep. Very with joy. Nice. This is not an ad. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, mine is very small and kind of hilarious and embarrassing. Um, 
So this is a, I'm showing this, I'll put a link or something. We can't link because we don't have enough followers on Instagram and Instagram is dumb. So, um, but this is a little aromatherapy thing. Um, it's called breathe me. It's for calm and relief. You put, um, you tap the bottom and you put two drops into your palms and then you like rub your hands together and put your hand, put your face in your hands to kind of inhale the, um, the smell. And it is, I don't even know what's in here as far as smell it's nectar essences.com. Um, but I put it at my desk and I use it in between, um, sessions with people or when I'm stressed out about writing or whatever. And it has become such a happy, calming, joyful smell that oh, sometimes wow. if I'm feeling super anxious, I will keep it in my pocket as I'm like walking around. Um, and I used to think all this stuff was like such bull, you know, no, it's not. but I think anything you can do to like lower your threshold of stress and anxiety lowers your threshold. And so you're then less. So a lot of times people will be like, I want more, you know, I want more control over my responses or whatever. One of the ways to do that is to be like engaging in tiny little things like this all the time, because then your, your baseline is lower. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just a happy little smell. I love it. I'm obsessed. That's great. Yeah. It's like pine and I don't know what. So calming. And the more you use it, I think the more calming it gets. Cause as soon as you smell it, you're like your whole body. It'd be interesting to like figure out what it like brings you to, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, cause I'm sure there's a link somewhere. Right. I know. Yeah. Smell memories are the strongest ones we have. Smell and music are the two strongest ones we have. Smell and music. Yeah. Did you know you can't lose your music memories? What do you mean? So Oliver Sacks, who's my, one of my idols, um, did a bunch of studies. He's a neuroscientist. He died a couple of years ago, but he, um, they, there are stories where there was this, this guy, he wrote a book called, um, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Yeah. One of the ways that Oliver Sacks changed the world is that he treated patients who were having brain issues as human beings Mm -hmm. to try to actually figure out what was wrong rather than just to like banish them to the psych ward forever. And so he had this one patient who had, um, you know, some really intense cognitive decline, could not function, couldn't remember how to put clothes on, couldn't remember how to function. And his wife was caretaking him and it was, you know, very stressful. And so he went to his house one day and noticed that this guy was a musician. Um, If classical music was playing in the background, he regained all his capacity to function. Wow. So he could like put his clothes on and like, talk and do normal things. And so they did a bunch of research and they, they realized that I don't know the specifics enough to talk like officially about this, but I can look into it for next time, but that music memories are coded in the brain differently. And so I know it's crazy. He was, um, was it his story that was awakenings with, with, um, yep. Robert De Niro and, and Robin Williams. Oh God. I loved that movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That, so that was about him. Okay. The, um, his, he wrote a book called Awakenings, which is his autobiography. I think he's written. Okay. Um, I think I could be wrong about that. No, I think you're, you're right. You're right. Um, and there was a, the, there was a documentary about him that came out last year that is beautiful and it tells his story, like, which is beautiful. And by the way, he did not, he was a very troubled kind of dysfunctional, not, I don't mean to label that, but like he was really struggling until he started studying migraines and he really so fascinated with how weird migraines are that he fell into neuroscience and completely changed the word, the world. But he was not, it was not one of these situations where he knew at age five, he was going to be a doctor and like, did you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. He had a, he had brutal trauma in his life. How cool is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I want to watch that. It's on, if you go to like the Oliver Sacks Foundation website, you can stream it from there. Okay. It's fascinating. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, all right. We have a website. Go to our website. Please write us letters um, at the trauma tapes at gmail.com. So we can keep doing this. And um, our website is by our brother, Jake. We also have an Instagram um, which is, I think just the trauma tapes on Instagram mm-hmm. and we are struggling with the internet. 
So bear with us, but we're learning how to put stuff up like our tiny little joys and episode announcements and stuff like that, um, which will all eventually get linked to the website and all that stuff. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. Thank you. 